0: Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series. We're continuing along in this series entitled Out of Bondage, Into Abundance. And we have now come to part six of this seven-part series. And if you are just joining us, uh, the notes and all of the previous recordings of these studies are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and if you just follow the menus there, you should hopefully be able to find the downloadable outline, as well as any of the audio recordings for the previous studies. Uh, Let me just give a brief introduction, and I want to get right into some new material tonight. Um, We are looking at the story of Israel coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land. And there's one simple verse that we looked at at the beginning that kind of summarizes this whole journey in one single sentence. It says God brought them out in order to take them in. And really that's what this whole story boils down to God went down, delivered them out of Egypt, and his purpose was not just to take them out, but it was to take them in to a new place called Canaan, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And we're studying this not just to learn more about Israel's history, although this is indeed history. It really did happen. Everything written in the Old Testament really happened. But we're looking beyond that to understand that God was painting a picture through this very real history of Israel for you and for me. And our Christian life is also likened to a journey. And we also find ourselves at the beginning in bondage, just as Israel found herself in bondage in Egypt. So the Bible says we were once slaves to sin. Whoever commits sin is the slave of sin, Jesus said. But the story of redemption, the story of salvation, is not just of Jesus delivering us from sin. Thank God He does that. But He wants to take us somewhere. He wants to take us into an abundant life, both here in this life, but more importantly, He wants to prepare us for an abundant, eternal life in the kingdom of God. And we've come to a very important section of this entire study in Part 6, which is entitled, Conquering Seven Nations. Now, Israel may not have fully understood at the start of their journey what all was going to be involved. Neither do you and I fully understand when we first come to Christ what all lies ahead of us, but it's an amazing adventure, it's an amazing journey that we begin when we start following Jesus Christ, and whether we signed up for it or not, we soon find that we're in a battle. More correctly, we find ourselves in a war. And we were just talking before we began tonight about this movie that has been a blockbuster in the theaters called The War Room. If you haven't seen it, I would strongly recommend that you go see it. And basically, the war room is the prayer room. And Paul teaches the Ephesians, our warfare is not with flesh and blood. We often think that our battles are with people, with earthly, with material things, circumstances, and situations, but Paul says that's not really where our problem lies, Our warfare is not with flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities, against thrones, dominions, evil powers, wickedness in high and heavenly places, and because of that, we need to understand the nature of the battle, and then understand how to fight this battle. He says, put on the whole armor of God, be filled with the power of God, and then know how to wage war correctly against those enemies. Well, the children of Israel, they found out in bits and pieces as time progressed that having come out of the bondage of Egypt and making their way toward the promised land, God began to speak to them about the fact that there were seven wicked enemy nations dwelling in the promised land. It was their home. They actually lived there before the Israelites did. And God was preparing them as a mighty army to ultimately cross the River Jordan, go into the promised land, ready to drive out, defeat, and destroy those seven evil, wicked nations. And one by one, we are studying those seven nations, because I believe they're highly significant, and they speak to us about different areas of combat, warfare, in our spiritual lives, where we also need to overcome. And I want to begin again tonight in Deuteronomy 7, because we're starting with a second nation here. There are seven nations that we'll read about in Deuteronomy 7, easy to remember, 7-7, Deuteronomy 7, from verse 1 to verse 6, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations, and here's the list, the Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. That's very significant. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you, and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. We saw that seven is a number representing perfection or fullness. These were evil wicked nations. They were involved in all kinds of evil ranging from idolatry to perversion, homosexuality, and a host of other abominations. They were offering their sons and daughters as living sacrifices under these false gods that they worshiped. And God told the Israelites later on, I'm going to go before you like a devouring fire I'm going to destroy these seven nations, not because of your goodness or righteousness, but because of their wickedness. I'm going to drive them out before you. So, we looked at the Canaanites, first and foremost, because in a sense, they're the root of all these other nations. Five of the other six nations sprang directly from Canaan. So Canaan gave rise to the Canaanites and five of these other wicked nations. So we studied the Canaanites first. They represent the love of money, the love of the world, the love of material things. The love of money, remember, is the root of all evil. So in one sense, The Canaanites are the root of all these other evil nations. Now tonight we want to move on to nation number two and we're going to begin looking at the Amorites. So we finished with the Canaanites, we're now moving on to our second of seven nations that needed to be overcome the Amorites. And let me just remind you once again God has called us to be overcomers. Very clear, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are, by no coincidence, seven messages given to seven churches. And in all seven messages, you find the same theme spoken over and over and over. To him who overcomes, I will, and then he gives specific promises to each one of those seven churches. So, God is calling His church, He's calling the Bride of Christ to rise up in the power of God, put on the whole armor of God, and to be overcomers. And these wicked nations represent some of the major powers of darkness and evil that must be overcome in these last days not just in your personal life, but we need to understand, this is bigger than you and me, we need to understand that as a church we are doing battle with these evil powers, forces of darkness in heavenly places, and we need to use the weapons he's given to us, not carnal weapons, but mighty weapons to the pulling down of these strongholds and powers of darkness. Now, the second nation we want to look at, if you're following in the outline notes, we are on page 97, and again, this is in part 6, Conquering Seven Nations. We've come to Roman numeral number 2, the second nation in our list, the Amorites. And as with each nation, I always try to look and see if there's any description given in the Old Testament about this nation, where they lived, what they did. Then we want to look at the meaning of their name, see if the Hebrew name has any significance. And then we try to go from there to connect it with the New Testament. What does this represent for the church? And I think this second one is very clear, just as the first one was. We begin in Numbers chapter 13, verse 29, where we learn something about the habits of the Amorites. The scripture reads, The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea, and along the Jordan. We saw that the Canaanites lived near the sea because they were merchants. They were business people. The Amorites, on the other hand, always are mentioned in the scriptures as living in the hill country. These were mountaineers. They lived in high places. And the literal meaning of their name in Hebrew means publicity, prominence, or mountaineer. Publicity, prominence, or mountaineer. And we can see in other scriptures also that they lived in the hill country, or in mountainous places. And in Deuteronomy 1, uh, we're not going to read the verses, but If you want to look it up, you can find it there. Again, it mentions the Amorites living in the hill country. The King James Version translates that in the mount. And actually, if you look up that word in Hebrew, it's quite interesting. It means a mountain, a range of hills, and it also means promotion. I found that quite interesting. So... Putting all this together, you may already be guessing who the Amorites represent. They live in high places. They speak about mountaineers. The name literally means publicity or prominence. And the place where they lived figuratively represents promotion. The Amorites represent a spirit of pride. And man, do we have plenty of that to go around in the world today. And we're going to look in some detail at this spirit, the spirit of, of pride, the, the prominent ones, the ones who promoted themselves, the, the ones who loved publicity and, and prominence. Uh, They are the Amorites. And it's interesting, in Judges chapter 1 verse 34, the Amorites even tried to confine the Israelites to high places. In other words, this spirit wants to force others into high places, into that mindset of pride and arrogance. It says there, the Amorites confined the Danites, remember the Danites were one of the tribes of Israel, the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. So this spirit works even on God's people's minds, bringing them to a place of pride where we can no longer humble ourselves. We can no longer come down to the humble plain. It confines us to the hill country, the high places. And whenever you read in the Old Testament about dwelling on high, dwelling in high places, it's often used figuratively to represent pride, arrogance, and high-mindedness. I'll give you just one of many, many examples in Isaiah 26 and verse 5. It says, God humbles those who dwell on high. Now, obviously, God's not going to humble people just because they live in the mountains. Um, This is talking about a mindset mindset. It's being used figuratively, not those who literally dwell at a high altitude, but it's speaking about people who are proud. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. So, high places, dwelling on high, Lofty cities, lofty places, these all speak, figuratively, of a spirit of pride. The Amorites were the prominent ones. They were the tall ones. They literally were tall people. So, putting all this together, it makes for quite a picture. You've got these prominent, tall people who live in high places, they live in the hill country, and their very name means prominence, publicity, or promotion. Um, In the Old Testament, before Israel crossed the River Jordan into the Promised Land, they had already defeated two kings of the Amorites, And you may remember their names, kind of strange names, Sihon and Og. And I'm just going to read two verses about these two kings of the Amorites that Israel had already defeated before crossing into Canaan. The first reference comes from Joshua chapter 2 and verse 10. You may remember the story there where the two Hebrew spies uh, went across into the promised land and met the harlot Rahab. And these are actually the words of Rahab uh, to the two spies. It says, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. So the, the residents of Canaan had already heard the fame of the God of Israel, They had already heard about the great things God had done for his people at the Red Sea, and even, as we'll read here, what God had done to these two kings of the Amorites. Let's read this again, Joshua 2.10, Rahab speaking. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, "...the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed." So this was sort of a preview of coming attractions before they even entered into the promised land. They had begun to defeat some of the leaders of the Amorites. Look at Deuteronomy 3 and verse 11. We find a very interesting description of one of these two kings, Og. Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Rephaites. His bed was decorated with iron and was more than nine cubits long and four cubits wide. It is still in Rabbah of the Ammonites. Now, we don't use cubits, To measure any longer but a cubit is basically one and a half feet. It was the distance from your elbow to the tip of your fingers. So using 18 inches as the equivalent of one cubit, this means that Og's bed was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. Man, you talk about a king-sized bed. <laughs> this is a big one. Thirteen feet long and six feet wide for one guy's bed. These were very tall people, as we'll see in the next verse. They were tall, they were prominent, and they were proud. Amos chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. God is speaking here. And he says, Yet I, the Lord, I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites." tall as cedars, strong as oaks. So the obvious spiritual meaning of this second nation, the Amorites, is going to be pride, arrogance, high-mindedness, and all the things that go along with that. Um, Several times already, God has specifically mentioned the Amorites, and it's interesting, if we go all the way back once again to Genesis 15, verse 16, a scripture that we've looked at several times, it's an amazing scripture, this is where God revealed to Abraham the whole plan for Israel going into Egypt, coming out of Egypt, and going into the promised land. But let's read it again to see one more detail that we may have missed when we read this earlier. Genesis 15, verse 16, God told Abraham the following, In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, meaning back to Canaan, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Interesting. The sin of the Amorites. So, we learn very early on that there's something very sinful, something very evil about these Amorites. And one of the sins specifically mentioned in the Scriptures was idolatry, the worship of false gods. And we're going to get more deeply into this a little later on, but let me just go ahead and introduce this thought now. Basically, pride in and of itself is a form of idolatry. What we're worshiping is self. We're actually placing ourselves on a throne, we're bowing down to the God of self. Our opinion, our self, our works, our intelligence, our accomplishments, we worship before the altar of self. It's a form of idolatry. Look at Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. Joshua told the Israelites, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites. Notice that. The gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So the Amorites worshipped false gods, they were sinful people, the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure in Abraham's day, but now it has. Now it has come to fullness, and God is going to bring judgment on the Amorites. The high lofty, prominent ones, the tall ones, tall as cedars, strong as oaks. The, the, the Amorites speak of a spirit of pride, prominence, publicity, promotion. I think you get the picture. This is what is behind all arrogance, all attempts on man's part to lift himself up, to exalt himself. And we've looked at this scripture before in the context of the Canaanites, but notice again, it not only mentions the Canaanites, but it also mentions the Amorites, and it's used by God as a strong rebuke against his people, Israel. And it's found in Ezekiel, chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. Note here, God tells the Israelites that their father was an Amorite. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices, and say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem, so God is speaking To his people, your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Wow. What a rebuke. Three of these seven evil nations, they knew what God was saying to them. These nations were wicked. They were were detestable in God's sight. And God wanted to utterly destroy these nations. And here God is telling the Israelites, you're just like them. Your ancestry and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. In other words, your, your very DNA stems from a spirit of pride. Your father was an Amorite. This may call to your mind the next scripture, which sounds eerily similar. It's found in the New Testament, where Christ is rebuking the Jewish people again. In John 8, verse 44, speaking To the Israelites, he tells them that their father was the devil. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and a the father of lies. As you can well imagine, this didn't go over real well with the crowd. They were angry. They were ready to stone Jesus. This really riled them up. But he was telling them the truth. He had told them earlier in the chapter, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, he's telling them the truth. And they had every opportunity right then and there to agree with him and say, you know what? you're right. We need help. Pray for us. We we need to get free from this spirit. We don't want to be like the devil. We don't want uh, the devil as our father. We want God to be our father. But instead, they fought with him, they argued with him, they justified themselves, and consequently, they proved his point. They belonged, not to, to God, they claimed to be Abraham's descendants, but Truly, Jesus hit the nail on the head here. You belong to the devil. Well, it was actually pride that led to Lucifer's fall. And I don't want to go real deep into this, but I find it helps if we understand where the devil came from. A lot of people ask, if God made everything, why did he make the devil? Well, he didn't exactly make the devil. And let me let me qualify this by looking at two portions of scripture. Let's begin in Isaiah 14. Yes, God created all things. Everything in the universe resulted from God's creative will, wisdom, and power. But part of God's creation was allowing certain creatures to have free will. He didn't create robots to love him and worship him. And we learn that he created both angels and man with the ability to make certain choices. He gave us at least some measure of free will. Otherwise, He could have created a bunch of robot angels and a bunch of robot humans who would automatically praise him, magnify him, but it wouldn't really be coming from their heart, and it certainly wouldn't be the product of their own choice. God wants men and women and even wants angels who choose to love him, who choose to trust him, who choose to worship him, I can go another way if I want to, but I choose to follow Christ. I choose to worship God. Now, if we understand that Satan, the devil, wasn't originally created as a a, a devil with a pitchfork and, and all that nonsense, he was a glorious, anointed cherub, one of the highest beings in God's kingdom and we can understand certain things about him from these two passages that I'm going to read we don't know everything about it but we can put a few things together here and figure out that something happened to this beautiful high glorious angelic being that God created for his purposes but got corrupted by pride. And this is what I want you to see. Pride and self-exaltation is at the root of what caused this beautiful, glorious angel to become the devil. In the beginning, he's known as God's morning star, the anointed cherub. But now, He's known as the serpent, Satan, the devil. Look with me in Isaiah 14, verses 11 to 14. And this is obviously speaking figuratively about something very big that happened in heaven. Follow with me here. Isaiah 14 from verse 11. All your pomp, notice that word pomp, all your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven. Morning star. Son of the dawn. Note carefully every word here. How you have fallen from heaven. Not from an earthly throne. From heaven. And note how God addresses this being. Morning star. Son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. And here's how it happened. You said in your heart, I will. This is going to be the product of something that is willed in the heart of this being. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and here it comes. I will make myself like the most high. It is generally understood by most Bible teachers and scholars that this is a reference to where Satan came from. He was a very high being in God's kingdom, given a, a, a very prominent place in the hierarchy of angels and angelic beings surrounding God's throne. But whatever place was given to him was not enough. He lusted for more. He wanted more. And he said in his own heart, I will ascend to the heavens. So here again we can see implied in all of this that this being was given some measure of free choice or free will. I will do such and such. He wasn't a robot. I will do this. I will ascend to the heavens. I will sit enthroned. I will ascend, and the most grievous of all, I will make myself like the Most High. This being would not be content... Unless and until he actually became co equal with the Most High God, he wanted it all. It was, and notice these words I will ascend, I will sit enthroned, I will ascend, I will make myself like the Most High. This is an ascending, exalting, prominent spirit that wants to lift itself up. We we refer to it as pride or self-exaltation. There's a companion passage that seems to point to this same being and this same scenario, this same series of events that led to this anointed cherub, this morning star being cast out of heaven and becoming what we now know to be Satan or the devil. Ezekiel 28 from verse 12 to 17 Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, now some people argue, this, this isn't about Uh, any angel, it's not about Satan, it's just a, a, a message that was given to a particular king, the king of Tyre. Well, I want you to notice that it has to be more than a message to an earthly king because of what's said in the message. It's obviously an allegory, it's figurative, of something far greater than some earthly king. Listen to the following. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. I don't think any king of Tyre was in Eden. This is obviously speaking In a broader sense, maybe the king of Tyre had this spirit of pride or this spirit of self-exaltation that God is talking about here, but this is speaking about a being who was in Eden. The perfection of beauty, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, you were in Eden, the garden of God, Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared." Okay, we learned something else, very significant here. This is a created being. On the day you were created, a very glorious being. Whoever this is, this creature was in Eden, covered with precious stones and gold, the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Well, we get more detail, a whole lot more, in verse 14. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. Some Bibles say the covering cherub. This is an angelic being of the highest order. Anointed, beautiful, glorious, wise, a very powerful, very prominent angel. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you, ordained by God to this high place. You were on the holy mount of God and you walked among the fiery stones. This is the highest place in God's kingdom, the holy mountain. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Now, if it stopped there, we would wonder, man, this must be Michael or some super archangel. Who is this dude? But it doesn't stop there. Verse 15 again. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Now this is a paradox, and this brings us back to what we mentioned earlier. It has to do with the fact that God created certain beings with the free will to choose. That's basically at the root of sin and wickedness. If no creature had any will, we couldn't have sin. There'd be no sin in all of the creation. It would have been created perfect, it would be perfect forever and ever and ever. But inherent in the very creation was this potential for wickedness and sin. Let me be very clear again. God did not create this anointed cherub as a wicked being. He created this anointed cherub perfect in beauty. Perfect in beauty. The seal of perfection. You can't get any more perfect, any more beautiful than that. Perfect in beauty. And yet, wickedness was found in you. How does wickedness get into something this perfect, this beautiful, this glorious? Well, this is important for you and me to understand. Verse 16, Through your widespread trade you were filled with violence, and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Verse 17 sums it all up. Your heart became proud. There it is. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. God made him perfect in beauty, but pride entered into his heart, corrupted him, and caused him to sin. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth, I made a spectacle of you before kings. Putting all that together, here's what I think we learn. In the beginning, Satan was not the devil. He was not evil. He was not wicked. He was ordained by God to a very high position in the courts of heaven, anointed as a guardian cherub, right there on the holy mount of God, very close to God, obviously given great authority, great power, great wisdom, great beauty and glory, and all of that glory and power and position went to his head and to his heart, and he became proud on account of that beauty and glory that God gave to him. And God does not want a repeat of this. This is why God has so many warnings to us in the New Testament now against this very spirit of pride and self-exaltation. And here's the Here's the catch, if I can use that word. Revelation 3.20 tells us that Jesus is preparing a place on His very throne for the Bride of Christ. We are going to sit down with Him on His very throne. You can't get any higher than that. But, those who sit with Him on His throne, they will not repeat the same mistake that the anointed cherub did because we have learned the value of true humility. And we're going to look at a number of scriptures and I don't know how far we'll get tonight. We're obviously not going to complete this tonight. And I don't want to race through it because it is so important. But we need to understand the origin of Satan, and we need to understand the nature of pride. The Amorites, remember, speak about pride. This tendency that every human being has to want to exalt himself or herself. And how do we overcome that? How do we avoid repeating the same mistake that happened in the case of Satan. God wants to give us wisdom. He wants to give us beauty. He wants to make us glorious. His ultimate purpose for you and for me is to conform us to the very image and likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's pretty glorious. But the inherent danger is, like the anointed cherub, we can start looking at ourselves in our spiritual mirror and say, wow, I'm, I'm really something. Look at my beauty. Look at my wisdom. Look at my glory. And it can corrupt us. The very beauty, glory, and wisdom and power that God is giving to us, if we're not careful, it can corrupt us. Let me read this again. You became proud on account of your beauty. You became proud on account of your beauty. Now, let me give a simple definition here for pride. Pride is a very strong form of deception the very root of pride we're going to learn is deception. It's self-deception. And the nature of pride is we become deceived thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We actually come to believe that we are greater than we actually are. Lucifer thought he could make himself equal to the Most High. Sorry, can't do that. You're deceived. Anybody who thinks he can make himself like the Most High is deceived. And pride, in its essence, is a form of self-deception where we begin to believe things about ourselves beyond what we actually are. We'll look at Three verses quickly, and we're probably going to end there for tonight. Let's begin in Romans 12, read verses 3 to 6. We're over in the New Testament now. Romans 12, 3 to 6. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought very important, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought Now in a minute, we're going to answer the question that might be in your mind already. Well, how highly should I think of myself? He simply says, do not think more highly than you ought. How highly ought I to think of myself? Well, in Obadiah, Obadiah is one of the minor prophets, certainly not a minor message, but minor in the length of the prophecy. Obadiah (coughs) There's only one chapter, and verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home on the heights. Notice again, living on the heights is always associated with pride. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? underline, it's already in bold print in your outline, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride can really play tricks on us, and what it does it causes us to start thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. This next verse, I think, answers any and all questions about how highly ought I to think of myself. Galatians 6 and verse 3. And I'm going to read it from the New American Standard. Galatians 6 verse 3. I love this verse. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing... He deceives himself. Such a simple little verse. But oh, so powerful, if you understand what it means. If anyone thinks he is something, he's deceived. So, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, putting that together with what Paul writes here to the Galatians, who am I? I'm nothing. What should I think of myself? Nothing. I'm a zero. I'm nothing. If I have any good quality, if I can do any good thing, it's because of God's grace. It's not because of me. And that protects me from this venom the, the serpent's venom of pride. Oh, I'm so smart. I've got so many gifts. Oh, I'm so talented. Oh, I can do this, and I know how to do that. And I'm so rich, and I'm so famous. And on and on and on we go. It's called the boastful pride of life. But if we want to do it God's way, we can understand what Paul is saying here If anyone thinks he is something, when in reality, and I'm adding that word reality, when in reality he is nothing, he deceives himself. So basically, it's quite simple. I just keep reminding myself often, I'm nothing. I'm literally nothing. Paul said it another way in another place, I find that there's no good thing in me. Well, we would think Paul was a pretty great guy. How many churches are named after him? Wow, you know, St. Paul's this and St. Paul that. He was the greatest apostle that ever lived. But Paul realized who he was. I'm less than the least of all the other apostles I am the chief of sinners. I am a zero. I am nothing. There's no good thing in me. Paul realized it was all about God's grace and not about Paul. If we can master that, if we can really get a grasp of that in our day-to-day lives, it will save us from a whole heap of trouble. Pride always comes before the fall. God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. And if we want to be a friend of God, and we want God to be our friend, and we want a close relationship with Him, we're going to have to learn how to walk with Him in true humility. I'm not talking about some fake humility, where we think we're the greatest thing on God's green earth, but we go around acting humble. This isn't about acting anything. It's about coming to grips with who you really are. And if you don't know who you really are, then you're deceived. And that's the essence of pride. Pride deceives us. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Paul puts it another way in another portion of Scripture which we might look at later on. Do you have any gifts? Do you have any abilities? Can you do anything? Well, don't boast about it. God gave it to you. If God gave it to you, why do you boast? And if we can acknowledge that every good and perfect gift in our life came from the Father of lights above, then we'll give Him the glory for everything. If you can sing or teach or preach or you can help the poor or whatever it is that you do well, and God wants all of us to have gifts so we can do things well for Him, if you can do that and acknowledge that it came from God, and therefore all the glory goes back to God, it will protect you and it will keep you. We want to learn more next time about how to defeat this Amorite spirit, because it is very, very evident in our culture today. Everybody is about promoting himself, promoting herself, boasting and pride and publicity about themselves and drawing attention to themselves, exalting themselves. Look how great I am. Look how smart I am. Look how talented I am. And, you know, the whole thing makes God sick. Pride makes God sick. He hates it. He resists it. And we're going to look next time and see we have one of two choices. We either learn how to humble ourselves, or, and this isn't a very good plan B, we wait for God to humble us. And let me tell you, from personal experience, it's better to humble yourself, rather than wait for God to humble you. And, and again, I'm speaking from experience. I know what it is, when God has to come and humble you. It ain't fun and it ain't pretty. And you learn by and by to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And it's not rocket science. It's just frequently and regularly reminding yourself who you really are. You're a sinner saved by grace. There's no good thing in you. You must decrease. He must increase. And God gives grace to the humble. So as you begin to walk humbly with Him, He gives you grace. He gives you gifts. He starts to use you in amazing ways. But just remember, we don't want to follow in the footsteps of Lucifer. And after all that goodness and wisdom and power is invested into us, we corrupt ourselves with pride and start saying, I will ascend. I will sit enthroned. I'm going to make myself great. I'm going to exalt myself. And then God has to humble us. God has to cast us down. Let's pray tonight that the Holy Spirit would help us to truly understand the nature of pride and understand how to walk in true, genuine humility before the Lord. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your word tonight. Your word is so clear, O God, that this spirit of the Amorites, this spirit of self-exaltation, pride... Self-promotion, wanting to be top dog, wanting to exalt ourselves, promote ourselves, be in the limelight. Lord, that spirit is an evil spirit. It's one of the nations that you cursed in Canaan and you wanted to destroy and drive out the sin of the Amorites. My God help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Let us not repeat what happened with Lucifer, where because of his beauty, because of the high position you gave him in your kingdom, he corrupted himself with pride. Lord, help us each and every day of our lives to walk humbly before you, Truly and sincerely recognizing and understanding that we're nothing. There's no good thing in us. God, we were sinners, destined for hell and for destruction. But in your pure mercy, love, and grace, you saved us, you cleansed us, you washed us, you filled us with your Holy Spirit, you gave us gifts, and you gave us grace. But my God, help us to walk humbly with you all the days of our lives. Father, I thank you for each and every one who has joined us tonight. Lord, seal this word in our hearts. Help us, Holy Spirit, each and every day of our lives to walk humbly before you. We pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and Amen.